So when the House Speaker says that the House will move quickly to deal with the corrupt nuclear bailout, wouldn't that have meant starting a month ago? It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with the Full House, Laura Johnston, Chris Warnowski, and Jane Cahoon. Happy Tuesday, all. Good morning. Grumble, grumble, grumble. Okay, let's get going. Is the Ohio House finally moving to undo the billion-dollar-plus bailout of the nuclear industry it created after learning more than a month ago that the whole thing was forged in a bribery scandal funded by $60 million in first energy cash? Jane Cahoon, I've been astounded that it's taken more than a month for them to start to make good on repealing this thing. Should we have confidence that this is an actual <laughs> effort to repeal it? Or is it a bunch of smoke to make us think that until well, election day? Well, adopting your cynicism, Chris, I, I think the only time this legislature moves really fast is when they're trying to sneak something by the, the public. So anyway, uh, <laughs> they have taken a first step. The The new House Speaker, Bob Cobb, is naming this select committee that's supposed to deal with this quickly, or at least with a certain amount of urgency. But as I said, nothing usually happens quickly there. So he's referred a few bills to this committee, including a Republican-backed repeal of the thing. But there's so many questions still surrounding this, like, you know, would they repeal the whole thing and keep part of it? Would they replace it with something? When would the repeal take effect? And they haven't answered any of those questions. But, you know, there is a rather short timetable here because... On January 1st, the the law is going to start providing these subsidies to the nuclear plants uh, via new fees tacked on to Ohioans' electricity bills. And uh, as we've said before, the Attorney General, Dave Yost, is threatening to sue if they they don't get this repealed. So now House... Democrats are, you know, are kind of with you. They, they, of course, they're in the minority, but they, they've called for this thing to be acted on swiftly, and and they say the the Republicans are are dragging their feet on this. They they actually drew up what's called a discharge petition to try to get it immediately to the floor, but they seem to be thwarted in in that effort. You know, part of the discussion is do, do you replace it? And I the the thing that gets lost in when you're talking about the mechanics of how this happens and the games they're playing to put together this weird committee that they won't identify the members of is that they never did the full research the first time. Like first energy came in and they said, we need a nuclear bailout. Here's how much we want. And we're not going to show you our books because you know, that's confidential. And the legislature, because their house speaker was, was getting paid off to do this, did it. And so this time around, there should be a lot of pressure on First Energy to prove how much they need. Because as we all know, no sooner did they get this bailout where they gave their investors hundreds of millions of dollars. So they weren't as broke as they said they were. But they're not really talking about that. I mean, what, what came out yesterday was mush. <laughs> where I'm creating a select committee on blah, 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 blah. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't know when they're going to meet, but I, we'll have to move quickly. And no details. That seems like that smoke to me that we know we're on the ballot in November. We're all in gerrymandered districts, but we are a little bit worried about the anger of a $60 million bribery scheme. So we'll give the illusion of movement. Uh, I, I just, I hope, I hope the pressure is on and that this has a, a magnifying glass on it to do the work. What did first energy really need to prop up these old 
nuclear plants. And I know, I know, it's not long, no longer First Energy. They created splinter companies so that they could duck all the blame. But the way the feds are dealing with it, First Energy is the enterprise. So that's the way we <laughs> describe it here. What do you think the next step will be, well, um, Jane? Do you think you know, they'll... They- they very well could repeal this very quickly. I doubt that they're going to have a replacement very quickly, though, you know, just for the, if nothing else, for the appearance of this, you know, to to get rid of the taint here, the, just go ahead and repeal it. And then they do have a window of time where they, they could work on something else. But am I confident that they're going to be bringing in all the proper people to grill before coming up with a replacement? I I can't say that I am. Well, you just have to wonder, is First Energy still in the background, still using its muscle and its cash? We had the story we talked about last week by John Coniglia about how it uses its muscle to get what it wants. It it would be audacious after having this uh, series of indictments come out to continue to work that, to work the room. But man... It has been more than a month since right. this came out, and they're just now saying, yeah, hey, look, maybe maybe First Energy isn't, but maybe one of its subsidiaries is. I don't <laughs> yeah, you right, know, don't, right. don't forget that right, Chris, uh, th- this bill also gutted those renewable energy standards and, and energy efficiency programs and so forth. So mm-hmm. uh, if they repeal it, those things would be back on. But who knows what they're eventually going to do with that if they're still going to you know, put a stop to that. Yeah, I wish there were a bunch of people out with trumpets just repeatedly demanding that they fix this. There's a malaise, it seems like, in government where it just waits it out. It waits it waits and waits. Look at county government in Cuyahoga County. You got four people running unopposed, and we have the most dysfunctional county government we've seen since corruption days. It's this week in the CLE. Is a father's depression a key factor in an apparent Shaker Heights murder-suicide that also took the lives of the man's wife and twin 15-year-old children. Just Ranowski, we've just had a rash of these kinds of of domestic murder-suicides of late. And what we were finding yesterday is, is it sounds like depression was a key factor. Yeah, we, we spoke to the father of John Tobin, who is the man who was found dead at his home on uh, South Woodland Road in Shaker Heights. And he he said that that he had contacted the police after he got a, an alarming email from his son and or he asked the police to go uh, uh, do a welfare check at the home. And that's where they found John Tobin, his wife, Regina, and their two 15 year old twin children dead. And yeah, he, he, the father had said that his son did live with a lot of depression um, but he said that, you know, it, this is a direct quote from him. He said, it's just hard to imagine that it rose to that level of severity. Well, yeah. and he had lost his job in February before COVID. And they had a freak accident with the family dog where it fell in a culvert, broke its neck and died, which apparently also hit him hard. But man, I mean, it's just it's I think the third one of these we've seen in the past couple of months where, where somebody wipes out their whole family and then kills themselves. Again, it's an apparent murder suicide. They haven't said what the means of the death is, but they did seem to say that the, that the wife and the two children. Yeah. Were and, killed. you know, we can't really talk about any type of motive or reasoning. You know, it, when stuff like this happens, people say, well, you know, I had no idea or this came out of the blue or he seemed so happy. And that's sort of the the thing about mental health and and people who are are you know 
having thoughts of suicide, you know, it's sometimes you never really understand or know why, but you know, it's like you said, this is, we've had a couple of these happen already. And, and, you know, given the sort of level of, of, of isolation and depression that, that everybody are, you know, I mean, everyone in your life right now is, is going through something, you know, from a mental health perspective, just because of having to stay home and, the anxiety well, over let, the economy and, and just everything that's going right. on. So let's talk about that a little bit. Laura Johnston, you actually did a story a couple of days ago or maybe yesterday about how people might be reaching their limits of the COVID era, that, that we all have some capacity to deal with a crisis, but almost six months in that our, many of our, many of us are seeing the capacity reached. You know, are, are are experts and people you talk to expecting to see a huge rash of depression cases? I think they're the really stealing march? themselves for that, especially with fall coming and the fact that it's getting dark earlier. It's going to get colder. Um, think about it. Seasonal affective di- uh, disorder is a real thing. And if you are inside your house and not getting out much at all, then that's going to be more of a concern for mental health. Also, a lot of the socialization that people have been doing has been this summer outside where it's safer because of the coronavirus. You can stay six feet from your neighbors and have a conversation. If everybody's in their own houses, it's going to feel a lot more isolating. And that's what they're, that's what the experts talk to you about that we need to watch for this. Yeah. I I think everybody's very aware of it. And that idea that we have been stretched thin with stress and Americans are really bad uh, with patience and with uncertainty. Nobody likes to not know what's coming next. And in this culture where we've been very used to getting what we want exactly when we want it, it's really hard for us not to. And I think that, you know, to to add to what Laura's saying, you know, when you see so much of all of the stuff that we're seeing is related to the virus, you know, when you see people freaking out in grocery stores about masks and everything, you know, it's easy to make fun of that, but that's somebody's response to, you know, the unknown. Like, really what this shows is is how little control we have over so much of our lives. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and we have less and less because of this. And and you're right. We're, we're a country where, you know, we're used to having everything we want right now. We, we, we don't, you know, it's, we have a difficulty waiting in line. Like that's, that's, that's I think a really hard thing to imagine. And, you have to but, like play with your phone while you're in line because you can't just stand still. But think about it. I mean, we've had to, we've had to, we've had to come to grips with the idea of food shortages, resource shortages, you know, housing shortages, financial shortages, all of that. And, and, and I don't, I, I think there are people who are, are struggling with that and they may not know it and, and they may not understand why they're feeling that way all the while trying to pretend like nothing's wrong and and it's it is and it's difficult for people who are who do suffer from depression and mental illness you know if you're trying to just go about your daily life and you're not acknowledging that stuff that's going on you're you know that's that's where it gets kind of scary because you know and and I'm not saying like watch out for people but okay. you know what I'm saying is check on your people and and well, and have some greater right, and, and of understanding. You're right. You we, know, and, and I understand around. that like when, when stuff like this happens, we, we tend to go like, you know, oh, if you're feeling down, you know, contact this hotline or whatever. Those are good. Like if, if you are, do that. But, you know, really, I mean, I've had 
suicide in my life. I'm sure some of you have too. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things. It's like, don't, don't make the person who is suffering do another thing. Like if, if you feel like somebody's suffering, you, you don't have to confront them and embarrass them about their mental health, but you can say to them like, Hey, you know, do you, do you want to talk on the phone? Do you want to go for a walk? Do you want to do something? You know, just help them get out of whatever weird headspace they might be in. That's, that's, that's making them feel that way. Like, okay. Good advice. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Did the Cuyahoga Health Board, after spending a weekend considering its secrecy, change its ways and identify the suburban school districts with COVID-19 cases like the governor wants done? Or did it double down on keeping the information concealed from the public? And who are the people on this unelected board? Laura Johnston? Oh, they double down. They're not going to release those names of the eight schools with the confirmed coronavirus cases until the state makes them. And this was a really interesting tactic that um, the spokesman made for the board. They said that they know that the governor is going to issue this order. It's not issued yet that they want parents and the public to know about cases, but basically they said it hasn't been released yet. So we don't know exactly what they want us to say. So we're just going to wait for that and then we will comply. So comply as necessary. Who are these people? I mean, we don't, (laughs) we don't get to elect them. Who appoints them? You know, how do we get rid of them? Because they just are not serving. Do you want me to name them? Because I, I, I've got, I'm prepared. Okay. So Terry (laughs) Allen is the health commissioner and the board secretary. Um, There's Doug Wang, Debbie Moss, Esquire. So she's a lawyer, a couple of doctors, Gregory Hall and Sherry Dixon and then James T. Gatt. They have a whole lot of experience that is listed in the board website where they've been the, they work for school districts, they are lawyers, they um, work for foundations. But yeah, you're right. It's a really, they, don't, they don't work. work for us. Even though they're supposed to, they're not working so, for the public here. It's amazing. DeWine cannot write his order fast enough. It's this week in the CLE. Given that today is September 1st, with the Labor Day weekend closing out the summer vacation season at week's end, what can we expect from the coronavirus as the air gets colder? Jane Cahoon, I'm going to go <laughs> to you for this one. What's uh, what's going to happen when, when the air gets cold? Are we going to get sicker or are we going to be more I don't protected? have good news for you here, I'm sorry to say. <laughs> Pete Kraft looked into this and he talked to experts who say that when temperatures drop this fall and the air gets drier, the risk of catching this virus is likely going to go up. And that's based on the past behavior of other respiratory type viruses, including other coronaviruses and as well as the flu. And part of that is that cold weather is going to move us indoors and into closer quarters with each other. So it's easier, it's going to be easier to breathe in the, the virus if somebody coughs or sneezes or talks loud or, or whatever. And then, you know, especially if your house or your office or wherever you are, your car doesn't have good ventilation and, and, you know, heat dries things out. The, the heat that you use to keep warm is drying things out. So, um, you know, your nasal passages get drier and there's not the same protection that you'd get from those membranes. So the virus can maybe get in there, um, has an easier time to get in there. And it could be suspended in the air longer because the lower humidity means there are fewer water droplets in the air that could maybe 
you know, take down the virus and, and move it to the ground or wherever. Um, so, you know, <laughs> it's all kind of, yeah. You're just a yeah, ray of sunshine you know, here. Um, it's bad. It's going to get worse and yeah, it's never so going to end. Stay hydrated. Like, uh, one expert recommended using like saline drops in, in your nose, which I use a saline spray, I must say. And, and that's been helpful. I think warding off different things, but I guess everybody should get a humidifier too, right? Because if their air is all dry, that's the way you can at least. Yeah, I'm grateful. I have hot water heat, which, you know, is, I think, better than some of this forced air. I think that's not a good thing. Yeah. I have right. steam, so the, the moisture <laughs> makes it into my house. I, I'll say this is, this is Chris Wernowski. The, like, one benefit of it almost being winter is that we have the benefit of seeing our breath. And that will be a good visual for how how <laughs> your disgusting germs are going. So, so pay attention to that, all. All right, it's this week in the CLE. How hot are home sales in Cuyahoga County right now, Chris Ranowski? You're having firsthand experience with this trend. So, how hot uh, are the sales? Very, very, very hot. Um, we, I, I actually—that's where the story idea came from. Actually, we, I, I, my, my girlfriend and I are actually looking for a house and. Um, and we have been stunned at how much, how quick houses are going and, and how competitive things are. Like, you know, if you have a house and you're thinking about selling it, apparently right now is the time to do it. So, um, let's see. So home sales in the county were higher in July than the same month last year, according statistics from the uh, Northeast Ohio Regional Listing Service. Yes, MLS. Last month saw 1,776 homes sold. Uh, while in July 2019, about 1,600 homes sold. So they, they've had a 10% increase in sales. But where the realtors and the, and the people that we spoke to are are seeing the biggest difference is in, in how much people are actually paying for homes. And so there is there is some concern that what people are paying for on these homes isn't actually what these homes are worth. So, you know, there is that possibility that, that people are are so desperate to get into a house that they like that, you know, that they're overpaying and they haven't really pointed to any, anything related to the coronavirus. Although you could probably say that like, you know, our situation was we, we kind of got tired of living in a congregate situation where, you know, we were having to deal with people in the elevators who weren't wearing masks and, you know, building management that didn't care about it. Um, one of the big things that I think is helping people make this decision a little faster is the fact that interest rates have been lowered, you know, as part of trying to make sure the economy doesn't collapse. So, you know, they're, they're seeing a lot of people taking advantage of, of locking into those low, low interest rates while they can. The thing that stood out in the story was that the houses might be on the market yeah. for hours. You know, it used to be days or weeks or longer. I remember when Laura Johnston <laughs> was looking to buy a house a few years ago, like four years ago, she had the same experience. Like a house would show up and if she didn't get yeah. out there right then, you know, she drove us all nuts because she kept disappearing from the office, that she would get boxed down. And it sounds like, and that was just in a couple of suburbs she was looking at, but it sounds like that hot market is in a much wider swath. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because I wonder how this is changing suburbs because, you know, it, you, and you know, the suburbs have become a big talking point out of this election too. So it's like, if you have people leaving the city because, you know, I mean, look, these, these apartments that they're building all over the city, I think people are looking at their rent and going, why am I not 
just living in a suburb with a yard and a ha- you know, and I think that's going to, that's going to change. So, you know, all these people are, are overdeveloping the city and I think they're kind of nudging people to move out into air, you know, because people are like, why am I going to pay this much money to live in Cleveland? You know, the, where I can go live somewhere where the schools are better and, and all this stuff. I mean, I think it might be, you know, I think that's helping to sort of change the demographics of a lot of suburbs. You know, they were seeing like, like Eric pointed out in the story, places like Garfield Heights and in Parma, places that weren't desirable, you know, no offense to those communities. I mean, they weren't like hot real estate part markets years ago. Suddenly people are looking at them because, you know, those are the places that are affordable now. And we should point out it's a national trend. I mean, New York is vacuuming out. People are flocking out of there because they don't have to be there anymore. They don't have to commute. And you're seeing a lot of that. It it could spell well, a lot also, of doom for downtown. Right. And we're, you know, it, it's, you know, the, the it, I mean, it's just for, for people who have like, you know, who are working like low wage, minimum wage jobs, you know, they're, they're being pushed further and further out into the suburbs too. And so, you know, it's right. It, cities that really double down on on you know two three thousand dollar luxury apartments i think are going to have that that's got to come around and, and and there has to be some blowback from that at some point i just you know i mean you're just you're yeah, right. paying out your it's cities not at some point it's now and if their employers are gone and the residents are gone what's left you're listening to this week in the cle what are the indians thinking they traded clevenger why jane cahoon our sports writers are seeing some bright spots to this thing, but, but a whole lot of people were looking at him as a, as a very good pitcher who's going to get paid a lot of money next year. What, uh, <laughs> okay, what first of all, keep in mind, I'm a big you're, fan. Is that what you were about to say? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, you're our Indians fan, <laughs> but so you I'm know. not an analyst, okay? So take this for what it's worth. But just from what I've read and what I know, I, I think it would be hard to argue that this trade makes the Indians really any better right now at at this moment. It's definitely a win for the Padres to get a high quality pitcher like Clevenger and they're, they're making a run for the playoffs. But with the Indians, I think it's a little less clear. I think it's mostly about a couple of things, money and maybe the future. Um, they, they gave up, you know, one of the key pl- uh, pitchers in their starting rotation and, and Clevenger clearly was the best player involved in this trade. But you know, the Indians do still have great pitchers in their rotation. And we got Zach Plesak coming back tonight to start. And we have young Tristan McKenzie, who looks really impressive to me so far. So they might be okay, you know, in that starting rotation. We did talk to Dave Campbell, our sports editor yesterday about it. And he, you know, we said, is this punishment because of his nonsense with COVID in Chicago, where he he was out when he shouldn't have been, and then he was kind of a, a jerk about it when he was explaining it. And Dave said that even if he hadn't done that, he still thinks he yeah, would have Yeah, well, traded. you know, they I believe they would have paid him like $8 million next year. So that's that's a big savings for them, for him. And and then in exchange, they, they got a few players who are ready to play now, you know, ready for prime time. But they didn't get like a major star or a big bat, which which they really need. Um, they did get this Josh Naylor, uh, who's an outfielder who, who's been hitting pretty well. Although the poor guy, they, they brought him in as a pinch hitter last night and he got the final out in their loss. But, um, and they have a, a relief pitcher, uh, named Cal Quattro, a right hander, and he's, he's ready to play. He could help the bullpen. And then they have a backup catcher who's, 
who might be better than the two backup catchers we we have now. And then they got like three prospects who I don't know much about, but they but they do look promising. So as I said, you know, it it doesn't seem to be necessarily about making them, you know, uh, ready for the World Series this year, which to be honest with you, I don't really want that this year because I don't want them to finally win a World Series and have it be like a big asterisk, you know, with this COVID shortened season. Oh, I think yeah, most fans I would accept so, the championship but, um, anyway. This know. is Chris Wernowski. Right. I do not want to cover a championship parade during the coronavirus. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Well, and it would be the last year with the Indians yeah. name, probably. So, you know, maybe not win the World Series with the much embattled name. It's this week in the CLE. The Jimmy DeMora, the former Cuyahoga County Commissioner, serving a 28-year sentence for corruption, get a glimmer of daylight in his long-running battle to overturn the conviction. Chris Ranowski, this is a bit of a convoluted ruling, but, but it does seem like he has some hope to get out of prison earlier. Right. So let me see if I can explain this in a way that, that makes sense. So there was a split decision, uh, a, in a federal appeals court Monday that ordered, uh, the judge who tried, uh, case to reassess the effect of errors in her jury instructions and, and to reexamine the exclusion of some evidence involving Demora's trial. So, um, the six, six U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals uh, sent the case back to uh, uh, U.S. District Judge Sarah Leoli and, um, and, and decided that the errors were, that were made were harmless, or I'm sorry, to decide whether the errors that were made were harmless and whether they had any influence on the jury's decision to convict him. So um, basically, if, if people don't know this story, Demora was convicted back in 2012 uh, of 32 bribery-related counts involving a pay-to-play scandal that kind of rocked our county government and changed our government here kind of forever. And the judge sentenced him to 28 years in prison, and he's currently serving his sentence in Elkton at the federal penitentiary there near Youngstown. All right, but, but mm-hmm. before we run out of time, we should say the, the bad jury instruction was the Supreme Court of the United States Supreme Court mm-hmm. had issued a ruling regarding corruption about what an official act is and an official act was how you voted not necessarily taking a call from somebody and leoy's jury instructions did not separate the two so so that could be serious enough to do it the second part of it was she didn't allow an ethics form that demora had filed with the state showing his gifts to be shown to the jury which is another fairly serious thing. The dissenting judge in this case said, forget it. Forget the judge doing this. We know these were serious errors. He deserves a new trial now, which would be, you know, think about it. He was convicted in 2012 after a very, very, very long trial. This case dates back to 2007, 2008. So trying to retry this would be pretty difficult. I wonder if if a new trial is ordered, if they just make a deal and he yeah, I, yeah. I mean, this is I, I, I was stunned about this. I mean, you were here during the 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 thing of this. I mean, are you as as somebody who was here and as somebody who and, and I think Laura, you were involved in the coverage of this too, right? I think the prosecutor's contention that the evidence of his corruption was so overwhelming as to negate the the effect of the, this these errors is probably true. It was overwhelming. This guy mm-hmm. was a bum. I mean, he. 
what the corruption machine that he and Frank Russo operated just stopped us from progressing for a decade. Nobody wanted to do business here. And the evidence of that is once they were all wiped away, the, the county started to thrive. Now, the, the form of government we created to replace what we had is, is turning out to be a disaster. I mean, the county executive doesn't really do anything. The county council is invisible. They don't do their right. job. Everybody loves unopposed elections. That's, that's a real hallmark of a yeah, great it's government. A right. So, you know, there's talk now. I mean, you're hearing whispers like that we need to change it again because if we just keep going the way we are, wait, what, right now we have no leadership in the biggest health crisis we've ever had. And, and that's a problem because this is a time where, where people really need leaders to step up and say, we've got to keep this county moving forward. And instead, we're getting a whole series of no-bid contracts and people, you know, sneaking around. I mean, I, I've heard a lot of people say, we should have just legalized what Jimmy Demore was doing because we'd be ahead of where we are now. And it's getting harder and harder to, to debate that. But the one thing is, even if he gets out, I don't imagine anybody will elect him. We're out of time. It's this week in the CLE. All right. We didn't get to all the stories we wanted to get to, but that's okay. Good discussion. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Jane. Thanks to everybody for listening to This Week in the CLE. We'll return with another edition tomorrow.